So this week, I was thinking back through some of the first uh, trips that we ever took to West Africa. It was uncomfortable. Uh, It seemed so far away. It was unfamiliar territory. But when we first started going on those mission trips, our connection was Morocco. So we would fly across the ocean, a delay in Morocco. It was about a 12-hour layover. And then from Morocco, we would fly south to Togo. And as you fly south from Morocco to Togo, you are flying over the Sahara Desert, which was just kind of cool. You hear about that when you're a kid. You learn about it in school, and all of a sudden, here you are actually flying over the Sahara Desert. So I remember the first time we're doing that, and and I just want to check the progress. Where are we actually? I look out the plane window, and sure enough, I mean, it's just sand as far as you can see. It is just massive desert. So I decide to check the progress on the, you know, the in-flight plane route where you can look on the back of the seat in front of you, the little monitor, when suddenly a name appeared that shocked me. Because in our flight pattern appeared the name Timbuktu. No joke. Timbuktu. And and my first reaction was literally a, what? I mean, because I'm going to admit, I don't even think I thought Timbuktu was like a real place, you know? I thought it just referred to like that middle of nowhere kind of expression. I mean, when I watch cartoons, they always stamp Timbuktu on the crate that they're trying to get rid of and they don't ever want to see it again, right? I thought it was just this cartoon thing. I had no idea that Timbuktu was a real place, And it really did feel like it was the middle of nowhere. Ever been there? Okay, maybe not the real Timbuktu, but today I want that to represent those seasons in our life when it feels like we're in the middle of the desert. Sometimes you find yourself in the middle of the desert because of choices that you make, right? You make some choices that aren't so smart. Suddenly there are consequences and you're in the middle of the desert. Sometimes it's choices other people make. I mean, you you really seem to have no control of that. People make certain choices and it it suddenly feels like the middle of the desert. Well, I want to tell you, there have been some really, really great people who have spent time there, and we can learn from them. So I'm glad you're here today. I really am. I, I want to welcome those of you at Garden City. Um, want to welcome the Adrian Campus, welcome Lewisburg Campus, welcome Lee Summit Campus, and welcome our, our online community. Together, we are heart of life. And together today, I think God's going to show us something really, really cool some lessons from the desert. Psalm 63 is where we're going to hang out today. So if you got your Bible, you got your phone, if you want to follow along, we're actually going to read the whole psalm here in a second, the whole, the whole song. When you start to look at Psalm 63, you will see a heading to that psalm. 
the heading looks like this, Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the what? Desert of Judah. A song that David writes when he is in the desert. Now, who's the David here? This is David the giant killer, all right? This is David and Goliath David. That's who we're talking about. This is King David. And what we're going to read at the end of this song is he says, he refers to people who want to kill him. So it gives us the picture he is a man on the run because people are chasing him. They want him dead. He's in the wilderness because of that. Now, usually when we think about David running in the wilderness, we think about the time frame in his life where King Saul wants David dead. He's jealous of David. And so King Saul is pursuing him. David spends a lot of time in the wilderness running from him. But again, when we read this in a minute, you're going to hear David is already referred to in this song as king. When Saul was chasing him, he wasn't king yet. Well, there was a time in David's life when he was already king, but he was forced to run into the desert. And it was the time when his son, Absalom, rebelled and wanted to take the kingship from his dad. Ouch. Ouch. So I want to make sure you get the picture. David is being betrayed by his own family. His own son wants David removed so that he can be king. Second Samuel tells us that David fled the city, he crossed the brook Kidron, and he went into the wilderness. That is the setting for what we're about to read. I would say to you, David's heart must feel like he's in the middle of Timbuktu. Check it out. Psalm 63. Here's what it says. You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary. God, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. 
I want us to spend a few minutes today asking and answering the question, how does David deal with the desert? How does David deal with the desert? Because I believe with all my heart today that God wants to help us know how to deal with the desert seasons of our life. Here's the first one. How does David deal with his time in the desert? You might want to write it down today. We got you an outline. You can fill in a few blanks so that you can take it home. Let God all right, continue to work through this this week. Here's the first one. He has a covenant relationship with God. That's how David deals with the desert. This is where it starts with him. David has a covenant relationship with God. David is not just acquainted with God. He doesn't just know God exists. David knows God. And the words that David used in this psalm, when he says, you God are my God, those words are directly connected to the words that God had made a long time before that to a guy named Abraham. It was a promise that God made to Abraham and to all of his descendants when God said, you'll be my people. I am going to be what? Your God. And God made a promise. Well, that's where, that's where David anchors everything. As he finds himself in this desert, there's quicksand in the desert. And if you've ever spent any time in the desert, I'm talking about your life you know there are quickly moments that you can find yourself sinking. David knows, though, there is a rock. This rock is the foundation, a foundation that cannot be moved. When God makes a promise, he never breaks a promise. When God makes a promise, it is always present. David's words reflect his choice that he's going to seek God even in the desert, and he believes that when he seeks God, he's going to find him. That's where David starts. Everything else flows from that. What else do we learn? How does David deal with his time in the desert? Well, secondly, I want you to see he savors God, whether God seems near or God seems distant. David savors God, whether God seems near or whether God seems distant. The wording in the psalm, you hear David talk about fainting for God in a sense. He thirsts for him, he longs for him. But then there are also parts of the psalm where David feasts on God. And you hear that contrast, sometimes faint, sometimes feast. And I want us to see that in both of those cases, what David is doing is he's worshiping God. In both of those cases, what David is doing is he's honoring God. He's savoring God. Fainting is the form of worship when God seems distant. And in case you didn't know this, most everybody that I've ever talked to or whoever follows Jesus, there are moments that he's not really distant, but it seems distant. But then there are also moments that, that, that the, the feasting represents those, those moments when it seems that God is near, that, that the vision of God is so close and so clear that you can, you can just touch him. What David says is, in the moments when it feels like God's not there, 
my heart longs for him. And in those moments when it's just so thick that like you just don't know what to do with the presence of God that you feel around you, he says, my heart feasts on him. In both instances, his heart is toward God. He savors, he thirsts for God. Let's keep going. What else do we learn from David in the desert? Third, he wanted God more than he wanted all the joys of his life. He, he wanted God more than he wanted all the joys of this life. I say that because the phrase David uses is, God, your love is better than what? Life. It was an old song we used to sing that, that had that phrasing in it. Your, your love is better than life, God, and so my lips are gonna glorify you. What does that mean? I think what David's saying is he recognizes that he wants God more than he wants all the joys that actually can come from, from the gifts that God gives us, the, the joy that can be found in family, the joy that can be found in health or even career or food or friendship or music or homes or technology or sex or hobbies or creation. And I, we could just go on and on. All of the gifts that God gives us, David is not denying that those are not good, that, that, there, that there cannot be joy found there, but what he knows is if our hearts settle on the beauty of the gift that God gives us, but does not thirst for the infinitely greater beauty of the God who gave us those things, then really we're just treating those things like idols. We're not worshiping God. God worked on me this week with this statement. There is a gratitude to God for his gifts that's not true worship. It is likely that in the crowd to which I'm speaking today, there are some of us that really are grateful for our health. And when, you, when you're close to people who aren't great in their health, it reminds you and you're grateful for your health. For, for some of us, we're grateful for our family. We may be grateful for a job, a career, whatever it is. We may be grateful for our hobbies, and we may even thank God for those. But you ready? You can thank God for things and not actually love God. We do it to people all the time. We're grateful for some things some people do at certain times, right? Somebody does something that blesses you. Somebody does something that's good for you, and you simply say to that person, thank you, but you don't really love them. And I'm saying sometimes we play the same game with God, that we are grateful for the gifts that he gives us, and we may even tell him we're grateful, but the thing that David is dealing with here is he's saying, God, I want you more than I want any of the joys of life. The joy that I know is in you is what lasts. That's what fills my soul. One more lesson I want us to learn when we read this psalm, how does David deal with his time in the desert? Don't miss this. He experiences with the worshiping community in the temple. 
That helped satisfy his soul in the desert. His experience with the worshiping community in the temple helped satisfy his soul in the desert. Now, don't miss this, because I'm not talking about your private time with God. That's not what I'm talking about. We encourage you to do that. That's a part of why we're reading scripture every day. We're encouraging everybody, get up every day. Let's read some of God's word, that time that you have with him. What I'm talking about right here and what David is talking about in this song is the corporate gathering of God's people for the purpose of fixing our eyes and our ears on him to praise him. And here's why I say that. David made the statement, I have seen you in the sanctuary. I have seen you in the holy. God, I have, I have seen you in that gathering of God's people. When we fix our eyes on you, I have beheld your power and your glory. In other words, when David was out in the wilderness and it seemed that in the middle of nowhere, God was far away, God used the memory of the experiences of David worshiping with God's people in the temple. And as he remembered being with God's people in the temple and he remembered seeing the glory and the power of God, that is what God used to bring that close to David. That clarity, that power provided him a feast in the wilderness. Now, neither in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament is the worship of God bound to a building. It's not. But both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God blesses the regular gathering of his people when they get a glimpse of his glory and his power. What happens when we gather on Sunday is what God uses when we are in the wilderness in a given week, in a given season. God uses what we experience together to remind us of what we cannot see at that moment. Hmm. That kind of changes our perspective maybe on what this should be. And we'll talk about that a little more when we close. I guess I'm just going to say the temperatures get warmer here comes spring, I'm ready. The plants start to pop out of the ground. I've seen them, I've seen them. But what I know in my heart is when that happens, people start to do this. And that's okay, they go. We're mobile and it's okay. I want you to enjoy the fact that you can be mobile. I want you to enjoy the, the gifts that God gives you. I want you to spend time with family and friends. I want you to spend time doing what God calls you to do. But in that process, do not let anybody convince you that when you gather with God's people, that it is not something supernatural. It is something significant because God uses what happens when we come together to anchor your feet when you suddenly find yourself in the wilderness. 
We need it. We need it. Nobody likes just hanging out in the desert. I mean, we don't, I, when I'm not today saying, man, so grateful for, I hope, I hope, you know, this week I'm in the desert. Nobody wants to be in the desert. Nobody wants to be in the desert. But here's what I do know, and it's what I want us to grasp today. God uses thirst in the desert to teach us who he is. He uses thirst in the desert to teach us who he is. Now, I want to walk you through this a little bit. Remember, sometimes you're there because it's your own choices. Sometimes you're there because it feels like it's other people's choices. But my point is, all deserts, however you got there, all deserts, God can use to help us see the reality of the emptiness of our soul without him. And in the desert, he teaches us who he is. For example, in the deserts of life, even though they are difficult and painful, God is there. That's what he teaches us. Even though deserts are difficult and they are painful, God is there. Now, I'm telling you, early on in the story of God, as we've been, as we've been reading way back in the book of Exodus, we started picking up on this truth. God's people are coming out of Egypt. They've been in slavery. God sends Moses. They're on their way out. And come on, we've talked about this. They start grumbling. They start griping. And what they say is, Moses, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us die of thirst? That is literally what they say. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt so that we're going to stay out here in the desert and die of thirst. There is no water. And God did something remarkable at the beginning of that journey. This is how it reads in Exodus chapter 17. In verse five, it reads like this. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff which with, with which you struck the Nile. Now remember when he touched the waters of the Nile and it, and it parted and they walk across. He says, go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. God brings water out of a rock. What a cool story. Middle of nowhere, middle of desert. God says, Moses, you strike the rock, you touch the rock. Water is going to come out of the rock. This is Horeb. This is the very mountain of God. And it's God making this declaration in the beginning of this journey. He's saying, come on, this is who I am. I am the ultimate thirst quencher in the desert. I am your source of water. I want you to think about me like water. Think about me like water. And just like this water is present in the desert, so am I. The deserts of life are difficult and painful but God is there. But it's also true that the deserts of life are difficult and painful, but they remind us of what it's like 
to be in the arms of God because there's nowhere else to turn. The deserts remind us what it's like to be in the arms of God because there's nowhere else to turn. You know, because of my sinful nature, and I'm gonna include you in that group with me, if right now in our life, everything was paradise, like never struggles, never desert, everything was paradise, which by the way is what most of us are trying to make it most of the time, right? I'm convinced that it is likely that I would just get more and more addicted. I would just more and more savor the gifts of God. And if I know my own heart, which I'm learning from God, I would probably love the gifts of God more than I love God. Because I've done it before. When everything's great, when everything's perfect, when everything's smooth, I have a way of loving what I've been blessed with more than I tend to recognize how much I need the one who blessed me. I think that's why Jesus said one time, the more stuff you got, the harder it is to get into this kingdom. The more stuff you got, the harder it is for you to see. Now, I don't want you to downplay what David is going through in this desert. You're thinking, oh, David's the king, what's the big deal, right? He runs to the desert for a little bit. He's got all these resources. I don't want you to downplay what this desert is like for David because I'm reminding you that very quickly after he writes the, 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 the songs that we even read today, David's son, who is currently trying to kill him, will be killed. And we will suddenly find David broken. Broken to the place that he is literally saying, I wish it would have been me who died instead of my son, my son Absalom. I'm saying, when I say David's in the desert, he's in the desert. And he doesn't just have a son who wants to rebel against him. Suddenly now, he's got something much worse. He's got a son who's dead. And the loss in his heart. My point is David knows thirst. He knows what it is to thirst. But he also knows the rock. He knows the one who is like water in the desert. And so, through those experiences, you hear David's heart come out in the Psalms. And so, for example, in Psalm 42, in Psalm 42, this is, this is the way he says it, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. Why does David say it that way? It's because he knows, he knows that God is like water in the desert. He knows that God is the one, when it comes to thirst, this is where he turns. He knows in the Psalm that we read today, Psalm 63, Right? It says in, in, in the first verse, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. And I want to tell you something I think is really interesting today. There's an actual place in the wilderness of Judah from which we're really pretty positive David learned the lessons that we're talking about today. 
And it's a place in the wilderness referred to as En Gedi. You can look it up this week. Check it out. En Gedi. En Gedi means spring of the wild goats. And it's just referring to the goats that would come to drink water there. En Gedi is where David hid in the rock, hid in the cave when Saul was trying to take him out. And remember, he actually cuts off a part of, of Saul's garment. Remember that story? That, that happened at En Gedi. So if, if all this territory is kind of unfamiliar to you, I, I want to give you a couple of photos here just to, just to kind of paint the picture. This is the wilderness in Judah. So when you hear me refer to wilderness, when you hear me refer to desert, I'm serious. This is an actual photo of the wilderness of Judah. This is what it looks like. It is sand, it is dry, it is vast, it is barren. So when walking through this, if you were suddenly to come to something like this, that is a tree at En Gedi. And I realize that maybe compared to a tree in your yard, you're not really impressed. But in the middle of the desert where the heat is bearing down on you and you have not had anything to drink longer than you can imagine, and suddenly there is this tree with shade. And you climb up under that tree and you're just able to lay back for a moment and feel the difference in the temperature. You feel the difference in the shade. Oh, but it gets better than that. Because when you walk around the corner of one of those rocks, around the corner of one of those mountains that you see in the the picture of the wilderness, suddenly there is this. It's in Getty. It is a waterfall in the middle of the desert in Judah. I'm told there's actually three. There's a small, a little bit bigger, and then a third one that's the biggest. And literally in the mountain, in the, in the, in the whole mass of that, that desert region that I showed you with the first photo, in Getty, in Getty, really is that, can you imagine after being in the desert and you walk up to this and you're able to take a drink of water, right? You, you would just walk under that thing and just, you talk about major shower, right? You just let the water just fall over your head and just to the, the coolness of that, the, the refreshing piece of that, you're so thirsty that you can't keep going. You've been in the desert and there's just not an ounce left that you have to offer and then all of a sudden, right in the middle of that massive desert, there is water. And God says, I want you to see me this way. In the middle of the desert, I want you to see me just like this. That's why David writes that way. And he writes about the deer who pants for the water. He, he, he writes about being in this parched land and all of a sudden there's water. Now, Jeremiah, Jeremiah takes this even further. Jeremiah tells us, the prophet Jeremiah tells us in chapter 2, verse 13, he writes this way. God says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, you ready for this language? The spring of living water. 
and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, come on, can you imagine the, the waterfall that I showed you a few moments ago? That literally is a waterfall at En Gedi. Can you imagine going, ah, no thanks. I think I'll dig my own hole in the dirt. And no matter how good you try to dig that hole in the dirt, it, it's broken, it's muddy. And that's the picture God is saying, I come to you like a spring of living water, but instead you are choosing to hold on to things of this earth. You're trying to find life from the stuff that, that, is, that cannot give you life, and it's like you are, you are drinking from a muddy, broken cistern. If you believe that you yourself can give you life, that's where you end up. If you believe that some other relationship can give you life, that's, that's where you end up. If you believe that your career can give you life, that your accomplishments that can give you life, your wealth can give you life. And he said it's like a broken cistern. Jeremiah keeps talking in, in chapter 17. This is what Jeremiah says. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve, all right? I'm God, I know you. I know your thoughts, I know your motives, I, I know everything about you, and I am the God who rewards you, who responds to you appropriately. Now, if your heart belongs to him, that, that's, that's good news, right? That whatever you do, he knows, he knows your heart, and, and he's gonna respond, but if you don't, Trust him. That's where he goes next in verse 13. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. What an image. Jeremiah says those who, who turn away from God, you're written in the dust because they've forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. What a contrast. God's like, I'm this spring of living water. I want to give you life. This is, this is what satisfies your soul. But if you turn away from me, it's like I'm writing you in the dust. A spring of living water, when life becomes so difficult, when the physical part of life, the emotional part of life, the mental part of life, the relationship part of life, God says, look, in that desert, there will be enough of me. I give you water to drink and you will be able to stand the next hour or day or month or year, however long it is that you must walk through this desert, you will find enough of me. But if you don't, turn to me. Written in the dust because you have walked away from the spring of living water. Now check this out. Isaiah, the prophet, takes it then a next step. Here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 32. Check this out. See, a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind 
and a refuge from the storm like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. The language continues. Here's what Isaiah says. A king is going to reign in righteousness. Anybody want to guess who that is? Yeah, that, that's the one that we show up here, right, to gather together to worship. A, a king is going to reign in righteousness, and when that kingdom comes, here's what you're going to see. Not only will you know him, who is this spring of living water, but what he says is when he shows up, it's going to change everything because all of a sudden, this living water is also going to flow through you. This living water, this is who he is. When he comes, right, you, you're going to be all of a sudden like a shelter. You, you are going to become like streams of living water in the desert. Hmm. The deserts of life are difficult and painful. Let me show you a third truth. They give us opportunity to tell the world that God is more than enough. In other words, the spring of living water, who is Jesus, right? The spring of living water that God says, I want you to see me this way. Now, he says, this spring of living water also, he, he causes it to flow up through you that now God is our in But then he gives you a mission to also become in to the world around you. That's the picture. He is your spring of living water, and what he does in you is he then causes that life to flow out from you that in a world where people are walking in, in, in what feels like their soul is dry and, and, and they're looking for hope, looking for answers, he says, look, this is what I've called you to be. Quick question, who in your life has been your in Like who in your life has been like that waterfall in the middle of the desert and you look back and you just go, I am so grateful to God that when my life, it felt like God was distant, this person was like that waterfall in the desert. I want to challenge you today, sometime today, to tell that person, thanks. Tell them thanks. For some of you, it's somebody in the room here. Before we're done today, I want to challenge you to tell them thanks. For some of you, it's somebody you got to text. Hey, there's even going to be a time by the time we're done today, I'm saying a part of even worship today, you could text that person and just tell them thanks. But my second question is, to whom are you in Getty? Right now in your life, to whom are you being like that living water. God wanted Israel to be that to the nations. He wants us to do the same. So check out this, check out this text from John chapter 7. This is what it says. 
on the last and greatest day of the festival. Pause right there. On the last and greatest day of the festival. What is, what's happening here? This is the feast that the Jews are celebrating that anticipates the coming fall rains. That's the context of this feast. They're dancing around with palm branches. And basically, it is recognizing that God is the one who sends the rain, and they are, they are praying, God, will you send us rain? There is a part of me that wonders if what we're about to hear happens right in the middle of a moment of silence. There's a moment of silence at this celebration, at this festival, at this feast, where the priest... The priest is standing before tens of thousands of people with a pitcher, a container of water in his hand. And he pours that water onto the altar. Again, this is about a God who brings rain. This is about a God who, who, who is a spring of living water. I wonder if it was right in the middle of that moment when the priest pours that water that Jesus stood and said in a loud voice. And I can tell you that the Greek language here, loud voice is a nice way to say this. It's like he is aggressive here. And this is what he says. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. That's what Isaiah said would happen. That's what Isaiah said would happen. When the king comes, and all of a sudden, there he is. And that's the picture we get in John chapter 7. Here they are at this festival celebrating, right, the God who is living water, and Jesus stands up and he shouts, I'm here. I'm here, and whoever's thirsty, come on, if you can earn it. No, whoever's thirsty, if you will believe. To believe in scripture is to put your whole trust in. To believe in scripture is not just to know it here, it is to say with my life, Jesus, I'm all in. Whoever believes, he says, there will be this river of living water that's gonna flow out of you. And he says he was referring to the spirit of God, which we read about in the book of Acts. Sure enough, the very spirit of Jesus himself lives within them. And all of a sudden, these people are turning the world upside down. Why? Because this life, that they found in Jesus now flows out of them and they are dangerous. They love him. They're bold. They're meeting people's needs. They, they, all of a sudden, the world is turned upside down just like Isaiah said it would. But that's not the end of the story in John because when you turn the page to John chapter 8, 
The Bible tells us that the next day Jesus is in the temple courts and he's teaching. Now you got to imagine there were some religious leaders who heard what Jesus said that day before and you think they were happy about Jesus declaring, I, I am the living water? They know who he's claiming to be. They know he's claiming to be God. They know the Old Testament scriptures. They know what Isaiah said. They know what Jeremiah said. They, they know all that. They're not happy with Jesus. And so the next day when Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, we're told that they bring a woman who is caught in adultery. They purposely drag her before Jesus, and it's a test. They put her on display. She shamefully stands before the crowd. And they say to Jesus, Moses tells us that we are to stone her. Jesus, what do you say we should do? And the scripture says that Jesus began to write in the dust. And then he asked them, Anybody here without any faults, you throw the first stone. And then he wrote in the dust again. And I'm convinced that every religious leader that stood there that day knew exactly what Jesus was saying because they knew what Jeremiah had said. They knew the words of Isaiah. They knew about a God who said, I know your mind and your heart, and I am the one who will give you what you deserve. Do you hear what Jesus is asking them? Does anybody here not deserve what's coming to you, then you throw the first stone. Because if this woman gets what she deserves, then guess what? So are you. And all of a sudden, you hear the sound of stones, right, dropping from their hands. And on that day, they decide to walk away choosing mercy. Oh, man. Can I tell you that the same Jesus and the same offer is on the table today with you? The same Jesus and the same mercy is on the table here today. And maybe just like that lady, right, many of us, maybe it's our choices that, that, that lead us to the desert, right? A wilderness of emptiness, a, a soul that's dry. And Jesus says, I'm here. And your soul that thirst, I am living water. If you will believe, I will fill your soul. Wow. You can't make this stuff up. Seriously, you can't make this stuff up. How do prophets thousands of years before, how, you can't make this up. This is a God who wants to make sure you know. He loves you. I want you to fill in one more blank today. The deserts of life are difficult and painful, but they lead us to the promised land. That was the case for those first um, followers, those Jewish people as they come out of Egypt, and it's the same for you. And I simply want to read 
this text to you, and I just want it to be a word of encouragement and a word of hope for those of you who find yourself in the desert today. This is what I want you to hear. In Revelation, Revelation chapter 7, we are given a glimpse of what will be one day, and this is the glimpse of what we are given. It says, therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. That's the sanctuary. That's the holy. And he who sits on the throne, check this out, will shelter them with his presence. On that day, he will be our shelter. He will be our shade. He will be the relief from, right, all, all of that. It keeps going. Verse, verse 16. Never again will they hunger. Check out the language. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. That's desert language. And then listen to where he wraps this in verse 17. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I look forward to that day. Some days I get tired of crying because people hurt. People are in the desert. But there's coming a day where there won't be any more tears. Because the desert will be no more. And the one who is living water will fill us up to the fullest. And we will be in his shelter, his presence, his care, his love forever and ever. That helps me when I'm in the desert. That helps me when I'm in the desert. Here's where I want to wrap today. Do you understand that eventually you're going to stand in the desert you just will. There are going to be moments. Everybody's got moments. Some you can control, some you don't, but you're in the desert. Do you understand that what happens when we worship together affects how God helps you stand in the desert? That's what we read from David. And here's what I want to challenge us with. I, I'm afraid that too many times we show up at a time that we call worship but what it really is is this passive entertainment mentality. It is a mentality that I walk into a room and it's sort of like if I'm showing up at a movie or I'm showing up at, at some uh, sporting event, I show up at something and I'm here to watch and I'm here to hope that somewhere along the way, some song is going to be sung that'll kind of move my heart and give me something to respond to. I'm hoping that somewhere along the way, somebody's going to say something that'll, that'll trigger my heart and, and, and it'll you know, bring a response. We have this passive entertainment mentality that we show up and we watch. But when I hear David in Psalm 63, it doesn't sound like a passive entertainment mentality. He says, I have seen you in the sanctuary. I beheld your power and your glory. There is this aggressive God-centered mentality that needs to change in most of us. That when we come together, even in a moment like this, at all of our campuses, it is not a sit back and watch. It is a, I have shown up here to bring something to be a part of declaring the greatness, the glory, the honor of my God. 
And so I'm coming here to bring my voice to declare his greatness. And I'm not waiting for somebody up here to have to give me something. No, I'm here and I'm, I'm ready to pour it out. I, I, I'm not here just to learn something and then evaluate whether or not I think I need this. No, no, it's about me bringing my heart. There are people here that I love. There are people here who have been in Getty to me. There are people here that I'm supposed to be in Getty too. And so when I come together, it's not this passive sit back and watch and decide whether or not today I'm gonna do this. It is this aggressive picture of I am showing up with the people of God who know what it's like to be in the desert, but we know what it's like to step under the waterfall of God's grace, and we just gathered. I didn't come here to sit. I came here to declare his greatness. And my point today is when you do that, not only does it affect you, but it affects the other people who gather with you, who this very week may be in the wilderness, and God wants to use these kind of moments. You see what I'm saying? And I want to challenge us at every single campus to rethink about how we approach this moment together. And we really understand who we've come to worship. And this is about us bringing as much as it is about us taking. Yeah, we receive. There's blessing that we get. But what would happen if we were intentional about our mind's attention and our heart's affection being on him rather than we come and sit and we wait for something to happen and in the meantime, we scan the room. In the meantime, we people watch. In the meantime, we see kind of what, does somebody's phone go off or does a baby right cry or does somebody have to move? And, and so instead of our mind's attention and our heart's affection being on what's God saying to us today, what, 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 how can I praise him today? Instead, we let our mind go all over the place. No, come on. Let's fight for these moments that God gives us where we get to center on him and we get to praise him and we get to pray for one another. And so in just a few minutes, I'm gonna invite us all campuses, every campus, I'm gonna, in just a minute, I'm gonna pray for us and then I just want to invite you to just take some time this morning to be with him. And for some of you, it needs to look like this on your knees before a God that you know you need him and this is not the place to pretend like you don't. Call out to him. Maybe you're here with a friend, you're here with a spouse, you're here with a boyfriend, a girlfriend. I'm saying if you don't know what else to do, maybe ask each other, hey, is there something right now in your life that you're asking from God or is there something that we need? Together, pray. You, you got your kids here with you. Pray with your kids. Pray for your kids. Just a moment where sometimes we're on our knees, sometimes we gather together, but just this movement of God's people that reflects a heart that's toward him. Not just I'm gonna wait for the next thing somebody does. And then... After we take some time to do that, we're gonna sing about a Jesus who really is better. And if you believe that, I wanna challenge you to sing it with all your heart. If you don't know that, I wanna challenge you to run to him today. There are gonna be some people around this room. There will be campus pastors available at every campus. There'll be people available there. I, I encourage you, if you need somebody, that they will be there to pray with you. Come on.
Let's call out to the God who is living water in the desert. He's here. He's here. God, I'm asking that you will give us courage today to call out to you. God, I'm asking that in light of what we've read from your word today, that we will stop approaching these gatherings as though it is something for us to sit and wait and watch and God applaud at moments when when we like what we hear. God, may you change our heart, our mind's attention, our heart's affection. God, that we will become a people who step into these arenas and our heart already applauds. God, we cannot wait to praise your name. We cannot wait to declare how good you are. God, may there be freedom. God, in every one of our campuses today, God, in each place, as you speak, will you move our hearts to you. In the name of Jesus, I ask it.